I invite you to turn with me in your scripture to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, I'm used to having a little, uh, a larger area here, so if I happen to knock my Bible off your pulpit or my notes go this way, uh, you'll have to forgive me to, as I try to uh, rein myself in uh, here. Uh, but we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 through uh, 11, very well-known passage. We're going to be focusing just on verse 10 together uh, this morning, uh, but uh, this whole section, very important to set the context for the words uh, of the Apostle Paul as the Holy Spirit inspired him. And so, reading from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 uh, through 11, this is the living uh, and enduring uh, Word of God. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the Word of God. Can I pray? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, scripture that you've given to us. And uh, Lord, we again thank you that as we come, we know that uh, we are dependent on your work in us, both the one who preaches and all of us who hear. And so we pray, dear God, that uh, you would graciously be in our midst this morning. Uh, that we might know your presence, that you would speak to us through your word, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I imagine you're familiar with the uh, author uh, Jerry Bridges. Uh, Jerry Bridges wrote a wonderful book called Transforming Grace uh, many years ago. And in that book, this is what he wrote. My observation of Christendom is that most of us tend to base our personal relationship with God on our performance instead of on His grace. If we've performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, says Bridges, then we expect God to bless us. If we haven't done so well, our expectations are reduced accordingly. In this sense, we live, says Bridges, by works rather than by grace. We're saved by grace, but we're living by the sweat of our own performance. Moreover, we're always challenging ourselves and one another to try harder, We seem to believe success in the Christian life, however we define success, is basically up to us, our commitment, our discipline, and our zeal, with some help from God along the way. Our unspoken motto is, God helps those who help themselves. The realization, said Bridges, that my daily relationship with God is based on the infinite merit of Christ instead of on my own performance is a very freeing and joyous experience. 
But it's not meant to be a one-time experience. The truth needs to be reaffirmed daily. So we want to talk this morning by, from God's Word about God's grace. Uh, and specifically, we want to think about has God's grace lost somehow its luster uh, for you? And rather than growing in grace, do you find yourself sometimes uh, forgetful of grace? And the thing is, how, of course, are we to be reminded of God's grace daily? Well, this is where the Apostle Paul helps us so wonderfully in this passage. Uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, was well aware that his own calling to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and an apostle of the, the gospel of God's grace was unusual. God saved him, you remember, on the road to Damascus. It was through that gospel of God, through the, the uh, appearing, revealing of uh, Jesus Christ to him that Paul's life was changed. And he saw what he was doing. He saw that he was a sinner. And persecuting the church, he was persecuting Jesus Christ. And uh, God appeared to him. Christ appeared to him. And like every Christian believer, uh, the Apostle Paul shows us here that we must personally testify to the saving power of the gospel of God's grace in our lives. And we find out that that, that gospel that comes to us in Jesus does not leave us proudful, uh, but it fills us with a profound thankfulness and humility for the grace that has come to us. And so really what I think Paul does here in verses 8 to 11 is he gives his, his personal testimony of God's grace to him in Jesus, but it's really the Christian testimony. It is not just Paul's testimony or supposed to be his own testimony. It is the Christian's testimony. And that's because, of course, the Christian life begins, uh, continues, and ends in grace. From first to last, the Christian life is a life dependent upon the grace of God. And throughout Scripture, it's clear that those who are saved by grace are called to live by grace and will only persevere by grace all to the praise of His glorious grace. So this morning we want to consider these words of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, uh, but the grace of God uh, that is that is with me. So first of all, there is a testimony here to the life-giving nature of grace. It says the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's saved by grace. All that he is and does is a result of of the grace of God. By God's grace, I am what I am. It's a testimony to the life-giving nature of grace. Uh, an absolute dependence upon an awareness of an experience of the grace of God as the source of our own life, our new life, our forgiveness, our, uh, all, all this comes to us with this, this conviction that uh, grips our heart. And mind. This is the confession of the Christian believer. It is all of grace. It is all of God's goodness. It is all undeserved favor. Uh, these uh, definitions of grace might be familiar to you. B.B. Warfield said this, Grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. wrote another, Grace is the very opposite of merit. 
Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it is favor shown to the one who has deserved uh, the very opposite. Grace, said Matthew Henry, is the free, undeserved goodness and favor of God to mankind. Mercy is not receiving the judgment we deserve. Grace is receiving the blessing we don't deserve. Uh, We read, of course, uh, these words in uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in in Rome, uh, Romans 4, uh, verses 3 through 8. He says this, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those, says David, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Uh, that is, that is grace. God not counting our sin towards us. And we are, we have free and full forgiveness simply through believing in Him. He is, He is gracious. He is, He is good. Now, what does Paul mean especially right here in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, here's the question we have to ask. How did Paul come to be who he was as a fearless missionary and a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ? How does that happen? Well, he says, by grace. And, uh, Verse 8 tells the story. You know the story. Jesus had appeared physically to all the apostles and he appeared to Paul in a special way on the road to Damascus uh, described in Acts chapter 9. A blinding light comes. And Paul uh, recognizes here in 1 Corinthians 15, of course, that his calling was different than all the rest, uh, especially because he was actively engaged in persecuting the church. Uh, I mean, some of the other apostles were out fishing. Uh, but Paul was actively persecuting the church when the risen Christ appeared to him. He was not seeking Christ on the road to Damascus. He wasn't on his way to Christian Bible study. He wasn't on his way to the Wednesday prayer meeting. Um, he uh, wasn't on his way to deliver a meal to a friend in the church, uh, showing Christ's love to others. He was out for blood, the Bible says. And then Christ came. Paul was not seeking Christ, but Christ was seeking Paul. And notice how Paul characterizes this appearance of Jesus to him and the calling he received. He says, verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The word translated untimely born also could mean abnormally born. It's the Greek word for, uh, it's a Greek word for miscarriage. Born out of time. Um, born not according to the time of, of men. Um, untimely born, unusually born. Uh, Paul, no doubt, is referring here to the unique nature of his conversion or to the fact that he regards himself as completely unworthy of the calling he has received. And that seems more likely, given what we read next. He considers himself, he says, verse 9, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Uh, The Apostle Paul saw himself uh, as the least of the apostles. And uh, 
because he was a persecutor of the church. Now, don't think that this is Paul just some, you know, this is, he's having a, he's having a particularly bad day, uh, and that's why he speaks this way, or that he was in low self-esteem on this day, and you just caught him on the wrong day. Uh, this was a regular, this was a regular conviction of this man of God. Um, it wasn't a fleeting conviction that he was the least of the apostles. You might remember, for instance, uh, over in uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 3, verse 7. Notice what he says of this gospel. I was made a minister according, again, to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, says Paul, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So not only the least... Uh, but there in Ephesians, he says he's the, the very least. And so if you're, uh, if you think, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be the very least? Well, think about, for instance, foods you don't like. And uh, let's say you grow up as a child and you can't stand, for instance, uh, Brussels sprouts uh, or something like that. Now, that would, be the, that would be the least of your favorite foods, right? But what would be the, the very least, you know, lower than, lower than that? And to Timothy, uh, Paul writes this, 1 Timothy 1.15, The saying is trustworthy, says Paul, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So he's the, the least, uh, the very least, and he is the, the foremost, that is, the chief of sinners. That is, if you were said, everybody line up who's a sinner, Paul is saying, I would be first. I would be in the front of the line. I'm the foremost, he says, of, of sinners. It wasn't a fleeting conviction. Now notice, of course, Paul's not saying um, that he didn't have natural talent and intellectual ability and gifts. He had credentials as a Jew. He had his ancestry. He studied the Torah under the best of teachers. He's not saying he's a wimp physically either. We know from the Bible that, boy, he, he endured a lot. He was a tough Man, but he is saying he used to persecute the church. He used to be against God's people. He used to not have any interest in Jesus at all. But something changed. God opened his blind eyes, unstopped his ears, and changed his heart. And the result was that he was a changed man. He believed in Jesus rather than rejected him or persecuted him or was indifferent to him. He loved him, believed in him. And so what made the difference? The grace of God in his life. So here's the first thing. Paul attributes all that he is as a Christian believer to the grace of God. He's saved by grace. God did it. Said the great Baptist preacher, late 19th century, Charles Spurgeon. We have plenty of people nowadays who could not kill a mouse without publishing it in the Gospel Gazette. Think about Facebook. Samson killed a lion, said Spurgeon, said nothing about it. The Holy Spirit finds modesty so rare that he takes care to record it. Say much, said Spurgeon, of what the Lord has done for you. But say little of what you have done for the Lord. Do not utter a self-glorifying sentence. 
Say much of what the Lord has done for you. This is the life of one who embraces the gospel by faith. This is the testimony of a Christian. Not self-promotion, but God-promotion. Not self-serving, but God-serving. All that he is and does, all that she is and does, is a result of God's grace. Friends, this is where you and I must come to. This isn't supposed to be unique to the Apostle Paul. Testifying to the life-giving nature of grace. So ask yourself this morning, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you love God? Why do you have a new heart? The Bible says it's all of grace. And He has done it. And you are what you are by the grace of God. And so right after speaking in 1 Timothy 1.15 about how He is the foremost sinner, uh, Paul wrote this, But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, remember the foremost of sinners, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So yes, says Paul, I'm an example, and I'm an example of how absolutely patient God is. Look at me, says Paul. In myself, what a great sinner I am. Oh, how patient is God. He's, if He's patient enough with me, how patient is He with you? How absolutely gracious God is, Paul would say. Look at me. Why has God shown grace to me? Why has God shown grace to you? Not because you're worthy. Not because you're better than others. Not because God saw your potential and said, I want this person to be a member of Faith OPC. They're going to add so much. They've got so much to give. They have so much. And No. So that people around us can see how patient God really is for the foremost of sinners. So clearly, friends, the forgiveness of sin does not destroy our memory of our sins, nor does it take away our sense of our unworthiness of forgiveness. No, we remember them. Paul knows he was the foremost of sinners. Uh, But it reminds us that grace is never deserved, you see. The forgiveness of sin makes us speak much of what the Lord has done in Jesus. So, friends, do you know yourself, first of all, to be who you are and where you are and what you are only by the grace of God? And then uh, you will testify to family, friends, and neighbors uh, that you are what you are by His grace. And you'll testify of the life-giving nature of the grace of God. But secondly, uh, there is a testimony of the Apostle Paul here to the motivating power of grace. Not only is he what he is by the grace of God, but the Apostle Paul affirms here that grace lives. Uh, Grace works. Grace breathes. Grace labors. Uh, Grace is demonstrated in the life of the Christian believer. That is, grace, if you believe it, has an effect in your life. Grace does not make us lazy. Listen to what Paul says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Oh boy. Harder than any of them. This is amazing. This is helpful. This is, this is challenging. God's grace is not without effect, says Paul. God's grace is not 
in vain. That simply means it's not empty, it's not without content, and it's not without, uh, without purpose or without power. This gospel message described in the first few verses of this chapter is rooted in history, what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. But it doesn't remain in the past. Through faith in this gospel, Paul tells us it lives within the believer. It transforms the believer. In fact, it, it, uh, it compels the believer. It gives new life to the believer, new energy and new desires and new, and new motivation for all of life. Romans 1, in fact, speaks of the gospel uh, as the power of God, that is, the dunamis of God, that is, the, the dynamite of God. That's what Romans 1 says. The gospel is the dynamite of God. And so if you think that you can receive the gospel, receive the dynamite of the gospel of God, and somehow, well, that doesn't, it didn't really, didn't really feel anything. It doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't, doesn't compel me to love or to serve. And it's, the Bible says it's the, uh, it's the power of God unto salvation. Grace has an effect. It's not unproductive and uh, unfruitful. Over at Sovereign Grace in California, we're working through 1 Peter in our morning worship services. 1 Peter 1.18 says this, Knowing that you, Christian, were ransomed uh, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You're ransomed through the blood of Christ. Yes, you have forgiveness of sins, but you're also ransomed from an old life. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what the Gospel of God's grace does. And for the Apostle Paul, the effect of grace in his life was hard work. I worked harder, says Paul, than any of them. Now, he's not saying that, of course, to boast in himself, because earlier in chapter 1, he'd written this, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he's not boasting in himself. Instead, though, he's, he's, he's magnifying here the grace of God. Instead of being in vain, he says, on the contrary, uh, I, I, I work hard to magnify the grace of God. In other words, that the grace of God would be seen alive and active in me. Through my life. So here's the thing. From the least of all and the foremost of sinners to the hardest laboring and working of saints. That's how it works in the Christian faith. Knowing you are the least, the foremost of sinners, but yet have received grace leads to being the hardest working and laboring of saints. The word translated work harder means labor to the point of weariness. Labor to the point of weariness. I labored to the point of weariness, said the Apostle Paul. No kidding. Have you read the Bible? Have you read the New Testament? Have you read the book of Acts? Labored to the point of weariness. They wanted him dead. They dragged him out of the city. The Bible says he got back up and went back in. Um... He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. They had plots to, uh, to kill him and to take his life. And, and why did he do all that? Why did he work so hard? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us, he, he says, what made him do it? Well, God's grace to him compelled him to it. 
an experience and a knowledge, a reception, a believing of God's grace to him, the unworthy sinner, oh boy, it compelled him to work hard. He was not lazy. He did not say, saved by grace. Saved by grace. All my sin covered by the blood of Christ. So who cares how I live? I am justified, don't you know? Don't talk to me about sanctification. Love my neighbor. What, are you into works or something? You into a works righteousness? Why? Will that get me into heaven if I love my neighbor? Of course not. I'm saved by grace. Journey to Antioch to encourage the brothers. It's a long trip. Uh, worship with God's people. Oh, there's a ball game. Super Bowl Sunday. I can't make it. Make someone a meal. I gotta buy the groceries. Uh, watch someone's children. They got runny noses. You know, serve on a church committee. Somebody else can do it. I don't have the time. I've got less hours in the day than they do. Well, no. I'm saved by grace. Don't you know? This is what Jude warns of in his small letter. Jude 4, where he says that there are some who have uh, perverted or twisted the grace of God and, and have denied their Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. You know, you can do that. You can take the grace of God, the message of the gospel of grace, of what Jesus has done in his life, death and resurrection. And the Bible says you can twist that and you can somehow get out of that something that, that yes, all this is wonderful and uh, I'll, just, I'll just soak it all in and, and, and it won't affect my life at all. And the Bible says that's a twisting and a, a perversion of the grace of God. Paul says, this is what the grace of God does. It lives within God's people and it compels you to serve Him. Not to earn anything, you can't. You're the foremost of sinners. But He's made you the foremost of worshipers and the foremost of servers because you know where He has taken you, where you, He's taken you from. And so, friends, saved by grace, and that grace has an effect such that Paul worked hard. Do you, do you, do you work hard for the Lord because of His grace? That's the only reason you'll work hard, by the way, for His grace. Truly work hard to serve Him because you're immersed in His grace for the chief of sinners. Do we labor to the point of weariness for the love of the Savior? How are you laboring for Christ in this church because you are so thankful for His grace and you want to magnify His grace? What do you do when you know and experience the love of a friend? You know, do you treat them worse when you are more convinced of someone's love for you? No, that doesn't make sense, does it? If you're convinced of someone's love for you, you respond in kind. You don't treat them worse and worse. And this is all that Paul's saying. A deeper knowledge of, an awareness of, an experience of grace has an effect. You don't seek to please the Lord in order to earn His love, but in response to His love, that is your greatest desire to please Him. This is how it works in a church family. How do you become a loving church family member here at Faith? Well, no doubt because other members of the church family love you. And you respond to them in love. How does it work in a marriage? Well, a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church. And then the wife is able to respond in love. How does it work in parenting? Well, parents love their children. And, and their children respond to the love of the, of the parents. You don't earn love in a family. Love is given freely and 
and graciously, just as the Lord gives his love to us. So the Apostle testifies to the motivating power of grace. Grace lives and grace breathes and grace labors to the point of weariness. Grace is demonstrated in the life of the Christian believer. And as Paul writes in the last verse of this chapter, chapter 15, such labor in the Lord is never in vain. Never in vain. Grace has an effect uh, in the life. So there's a testimony to the life-giving nature of grace in this passage. There's a testimony to the motivating power of grace in this passage. And there's a testimony to our continuing dependence, our continuing dependence on grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You know, uh, have you ever asked this, your, yourself this question? Can a Christian be a proud person? Can a Christian be a proud person? Well, C.S. Lewis obviously thought he could. Because in his little book, little classic, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis composes advice, you know, from Screwtape, who is a high-ranking demon, to his nephew Wormwood on how to trip up a young Christian. And chapter 14 is devoted to trying to inflate the subject's pride. And Screwtape, this demon, this evil one, says this. Your patient, now the patient is the Christian. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues, says Screwtape, are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he's really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, Oh, uh, how, about, how about that? I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride or pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride... Make him proud, says Screwtape, of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. Uh, try to make him proud of his humility. That's very insightful, isn't it, by C.S. Lewis? We can become proud in our achievements. We can become proud in our knowledge. We can become proud in our experience. We can become proud in our uh, service of the Lord. Sometimes people who work hard like the Apostle Paul, have a hard time being gracious to others. Why is that? That if you work really hard, sometimes you have a struggle being gracious to others. Why is that? Because, friends, when we work hard, sometimes we, we naturally attribute that hard work attitude and that level of commitment and that amount of self-sacrifice and that obvious desire to serve God and work for God and be used of God. We attribute all that to our own efforts. And we begin to think that, yes, yes, like Paul, I work hard. I work harder than most. In fact, I work harder than any of them. I work harder than all of them. And uh, somebody better recognize just how hard I am working. Right? <laughs> and pride grows. And we, instead of Paul, we stop mid-sentence. And we just have the conviction, yes, I worked harder than any of them. And we stop there. But Paul doesn't. But friends, we can, we can grow 
proud in our hard working, laboring to the point of weariness. We can think of others in the church and we can say to ourselves, well, they don't serve like I do. They don't know like I know. They certainly haven't read all the theology books that I have. They don't know like I know. They're not as reformed as I am because I've done all my study and uh, all these things. Um, They don't cook and clean like I do. Uh, They don't teach uh, like I do. They don't have the gifts that I do. And a hard heart can grow towards others. A looking down on others who don't work as hard as we do grows in our heart. And love grows cold. And grace uh, grows cold in our heart as well. Why? Why does this happen? Why do we become proud even in our humility? Why? Because we forget that not only are we saved by grace, but we continue to live by grace and we are continually dependent on the grace of God. And anything you or I do for God's church and kingdom is ultimately no thanks to you or to me. But thanks are due to God who is working in us. You see, Paul catches himself here. Actually, the Holy Spirit catches the Apostle Paul here. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. No! But the grace of God that is with me, that's why I work hard. Notice how Paul exhorts the church in Philippi to work out their own salvation in fear and trembling. You'll remember, for, 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 it is God who works in you to will. That means to want to work. To, to will and to do according to His good pleasure. And here Paul says, no, it wasn't me. It was the grace of God with me. So you believe and I believe and you obey and you serve and you cook that meal and you love your neighbor, but all that you do for God, He is there. He is the one doing the working through you. He's the one enabling. He's the one encouraging. He's the one giving you strength. He's the one upholding you, compelling you, motivating you. Now, if that's true then we would live our lives completely dependent on the grace of God. And that's why someone who calls themselves a Reformed Christian, someone who calls themselves a Reformed Christian, but lacks humility, knows nothing, nothing of what it means to be Reformed. Because if you're Reformed, that is, if you identify with uh, embracing the doctrines of grace and the covenant and all that we believe in the OPC, if that's you, then this testimony of the Apostle Paul is your testimony. And if you believe that you have started by grace, continue by grace, and are absolutely dependent on grace for everything you even do, that would make you, I suppose, the most humble, hardworking of Christians. Now this, says Paul, is what we preach. All the apostles. And he says, this is what you believed. Is that true? Of you? Here at faith? Is that true of me as a preacher? 
Is this, is this the, what grips your heart and mind? Because, oh boy, if, that, if this is what grips your heart and mind, as we know from the life of the Apostle Paul, oh, the Lord used him. Used him mightily as an instrument, a humble instrument in his hands. In other words, this is my own personal testimony, says Paul, to the gospel of God's grace, but all the apostles testify to this and all, uh, the, every Christian professes to believe it. Every Christian professes to believe it. Corrie ten Boom, as you know, in a concentration camp in World War II, Corrie ten Boom was once asked if it was difficult for her to remain humble. And her reply was simple. Oh, you'll love this. She said this, When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road, And singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of that was for him? She continued, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I give him all the praise and all the honor. It's not about us. See, it's about him. And perhaps our problem in the church in America today is this. We think the praise is for the donkey. We're saved by grace to testify to God's grace. And friends, the same grace that saves us from our sin through the gospel, makes us right with God, justifies us, is the same grace that keeps us from sin and grows us in the holiness and uh, in the, in the uh, sanctification, the likeness of Jesus Christ, uh, which He has for us as His people. It's the same grace from beginning to end, and the church must always stand amazed at His grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's why, for instance, the Apostle Peter ends one of his letters by saying, grow in the grace, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, here at Faith, there's always room to grow in grace. That is, in the awareness of, experience of grace, in knowing the Gospel, that we could say, With the Apostle Paul, even today, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God, that is, with me. May it be so of me. And friends, may it be so uh, of you as well. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, confess this morning that as we again come to your scripture, we are, uh, we are uh, weak uh, vessels. And Lord, we thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit who takes uh, our weak efforts uh, and uh, uses them for your glory and our good. And so, Lord, we pray that this uh, precious word here in 1 Corinthians 15, that you would uh, help us to have this word rooted deep down in our souls and hearts today that this indeed would be our testimony, that we, by your grace, have seen our own sin. That though we too were the foremost, the chief of sinners, now, Lord, we are first in line to praise you, to adore you, to serve you, to sing of your grace and mercy to us as undeserving sinners. And that that would fill us with great joy and compel us to go forth as your servants to sing your praise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Pray it in Jesus' name.